Mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Are we live? Do you think we're live? I think, I think so. we're live. I am 98% sure we're live. Without Logan, it's very hard. Logan's our producer. He's like, hey, guys. <laughs> it's Z-Dog MD, a.k.a. Zubin Demania. I'm live in Seattle. That's right. Jeremy spoke in class today. That's a Seattle thing, right? I didn't know there was singing involved. There's a, well, I didn't give you the heads up. Right. I am here at the Hyatt Regency at an pretty awesome event. MCG Health is doing its all-staff meeting, and I was asked to come and speak. And then Bill Rifkin is here. Dr. Bill Rifkin is the managing editor for MCG Health. He is a hospitalist, formerly at Albert Einstein, program director there. Yeah, residency program director. Ooh, that's a <laughs> thankless job. And, and he was on the show before talking about unexplained care variation among physicians and how it is straight killing our patients and we don't know about it, but there are ways to prevent it. And that show did so well that when I saw he was at the thing, I'm like, Son, you need to be back on the show because I need you to teach me about observation versus inpatient, obs versus inpatient, because MCG actually makes those guidelines, the neutral guidelines that both the payers and the hospitals and the clinicians use to determine is it obs or inpatient. Now, India Watson is our secret sauce, and we rustled her up because she is one of these MSN, BSN, RN, CCM, like so many, so many letters. Clinical nurse at one point, then worked uh, for payers? Three payers. Three different payers? What's it like on the dark side, girl? Tell us. It was wonderful. Oh, I knew it. This is why we do it. Um, And so you've seen everything, and now you're working with MCG Health to help. Now, what's your role here? I am the manager of the care strategies department. Um, the care strategies department help you optimize the use of MCG guidelines in your facility. So what does that mean? So you guys make these guidelines like, okay, this means inpatient, this means OBS, these are the criteria. Mm-hmm. How, do, what's, how do you help people use this? Well, um, one thing we do is we complete a business needs assessment at that facility. So what are your goals? Where are you trying to go? Are you, do you want to decrease your observation rate? Do you want to decrease your readmission rate? Do you want to decrease your length of stay? So then our care strategies department will assist you in doing that by observing your staff, what are they doing? How are they utilizing the MCG guidelines? They're picking their nose. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> They're drinking at the nurse's station. <laughs> and then we make those, we, we, we look at those findings, and of course, and then we make recommendations based on how you're utilizing the content, interpreting the content, and then your overall performance uh, performance in the case management. Okay. So, th- okay, so that's... That's what you, y'all are doing, but yeah. here's the thing. Now, we got to back up to first principles. The reason I got excited about doing this show is as a hospitalist, hospitalist, nurse. Yeah. Inpatient versus observation. Yeah. For, those, for the muggles, the non-medical folks, this means you show up in the ER, 
and they're triaging you and they're like, okay, we, what do we want to do with this patient? They've got a congestive heart failure uh, symptoms and, and maybe a history of congestive heart failure. Do I bring them in the hospital and do a bunch of stuff to them? Uh, and if I do, how does the hospital get paid? Because the way that say Medicare or CMS determines this is, well, do these meet the criteria to be an inpatient admission in the hospital or could this be handled technically under something called observation, which my understanding is it's an outpatient yeah. situation. Can, can you elaborate a little more on that distinction? So inpatient we all grew up with and know very well. Observation is a Part B benefit. Hmm. And with many payers, it's treated the same. It's an outpatient status. It's supposed to be a time and a space to determine if a patient needs to be an inpatient or not. So there's some patients who are you know, obvious right off the bat, this needs to be an inpatient. And then there's patients, for example, with CHF, where they, you know, they have some symptoms, but you're not quite sure how they're going to respond to initial treatment. And observation care is the place where you can sort of sort that out. So it's crazy to me because it never made sense as a hospitalist. I'm like, they're in the hospital. <laughs> it's an inpatient thing. So why did OBS and inpatient even happen in the first place? Is, is it a money thing? It is a money thing. I knew it. Some people think MCG invented it. We did not. Uh, we can't <laughs> oh, that would be it. a stigma. That's like a <laughs> scarlet letter. We can't take that responsibility. Actually, it is, it is not new in the fact that in the 80s and 90s, there were chest pain units. There were places yeah. where we're going to rule out an MI and it's going to happen in 18 hours or 24 hours. We're going to spare them an admission and that's all the paperwork to do an admission. However, now it's a very big money issue. Part A payment versus Part B payment, inpatient payment versus outpatient payment. And I'd say over the past five to 10 years, it's become this real hotbed of uh, confrontation between the payers and the providers over this space. 100%. I mean, we would, as a hospitalist, it would always be like case management coming up. You realize this does not meet inpatient criteria. And me getting really defensive and upset and saying, what do you even mean? Who even right. came up with this? Why are we doing right. it? It sounds like it's all about money. They're all in the hospital anyways. No, it's different. The, the hospital doesn't get paid. Now, the thing is the doctor gets paid no matter what. Yes. Right. Although we have to bill differently. So we have to bill an observation outpatient code. Right. Uh, uh, typically is what I recall mm -hmm. from my, you know, I'm a wizard at billing. That's why I'm here. <laughs> you know, I care so much about billing. That's why we're trying to build Health 3.0 and get rid of it all. But uh, uh, so, you know, being all essentially about money. So the payers obviously are, the insurance companies are obviously motivated to say, listen, if something doesn't meet criteria to be an inpatient, mm -hmm. we don't want to pay inpatient prices. But then doesn't that hurt the patient if they're an outpatient? Don't they get a bigger bill is less covered? It very much depends on what the insurer is. In general, observation care, let's say for a Medicare patient, for a Medicare patient, when they're in, in observation care, they get their Part B benefits. And there, there can be a real problem of, you know, each, med each aspirin they get, each drug they get can cost a lot of money because mm. Part B is not going to cover for it. In fact, it was sort of so unpopular that they made a, a rule that for Medicare patients, you have to notify them when they're in observation care. Oh. You have to give them written notification saying you're in observation care, your yes. Part B benefits. Yes. Yeah. May or may not cover what we're doing, and you're not admitted. And if you, you know, then they go into uh, what would happen if you're admitted. That's how troublesome it was for the patients. Is it still that way? Yes. Certainly for Medicare patients. Yes. Mm -hmm. I, yes. I think and, for mm -hmm. some commercial patients, it might not matter to Correct. them very much. 
Got it. So if you're Medicare, it still does matter. And I remember because patients will get upset. Why am I not an inpatient? Right. When they found out or the right. or they had a savvy family member and they figured this out. And then we were stressed because we're like, well, how do we somehow game these guidelines right. to allow for an admission? Because right. it sounds like this one out of four bottles of Staph Epi on the urine culture sounds like sepsis to me. What do you think, Bill? So the whenever a lot of money is at stake, uh, you can predict that players on both sides try to stretch the rules around our criteria. Our criteria are clinically based. Sometimes we can be very specific about what something means. So for asthma, we have very specific peak flow measurements that are inpatient versus outpatient. For CHF, we don't. How bad does the pulmonary edema have to be? And we use words like severe and persistent, but then that that leaves room for clinicians to talk to each other and be reasonable about it, but also leaves it open for misinterpretation. Right, and that's the thing with these guidelines in general, is there are guidelines, they're not hard and fast. Right. Well, what are your thoughts on this as a nurse? I well, mean- um, from a nurse standpoint and from being a, a CCM and a case manager, um, I've been in that space where I had to come to you as a physician and say, hey, this patient um, should be in an observation status, not an inpatient status. And I think from a physician standpoint, um, they're, they're thinking maybe the care is lessened Mm. Um, but no, the patient will receive the same care. It's just like what Bill said. It's a payment. Yeah. Um, and, you know, we're going to get just this observation payment versus this inpatient. But sometimes, in some cases, um, an observation payment may be more than an inpatient um Per night stay, so but of course that's 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 a health plan provider contract mm. um, issue that they would have to uh, you know they would have to know what their contracts are or speak with someone in contracting to get that particular information. But from that standpoint, being that case manager, knowing the difference, knowing your patient, um, knowing you know if my patient's blood pressure got better within 23 hours then and you're not doing anything for it at that hospital so why should you be paid for an inpatient Mm. stay when truly that patient was observation so i think it's knowing using your clinical judgment along with the guidelines in order to um, support your reasoning is that patient an observation or are they truly meeting the the inpatient criteria and i think this is the bottom line look we can hate this and i did I mean, I hate observers and inpatient, but the truth is this is the game that both payers and hospitals and, and, and caregivers have to play now to get paid. It's so it's unavoidable. And, and I think, Bill, you said something to me earlier, which was the truth is we have to show our work now as doctors. We have to document yes. the, the thing. Now, one thing, you, I almost got triggered when you said I have to come to the doctors and tell them this because I was remembering so many. And the thing is, in, you guys don't, flashback. You don't even understand. <laughs> India is intimidating. Like just even being in the room with her, I, I'm like, yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. So can we role play for a second? Let's say – Oh. I'm just curious. Okay, let's roll. Play. I'm a doctor, okay. and I there's a, somebody is an old CHFer, okay. and I'm like, yeah, I'm writing the orders inpatient. It's in Epic, whatever EHR we're using, okay. and I've sent it. Now, okay. I get a page from you, yeah. and I come down to see you because I'm there anyways, and I'm scared of you. <laughs> How would you approach me that this is not an inpatient admission? Uh, so I would say something like, Dr. Z, your patient in room 708, um, Mr. Jones, um, his, it's pronounced uh, Junes, by the way. Yeah, I'm just. Sure. Not, you know. <laughs> 
No first names, though, for hip-hop. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's 708. Right. He's in room 708, and um, his, he's hemodynamic uh, stable, which means his heart rate is, is normal, his vital signs are normal, his CT, chest X-ray, all of those things were normal. Uh, what am I missing? Um, we have this patient as an inpatient. Um, he seems to be meeting the observation criteria that we are using. Um, are, am I missing something? Is it something you can tell me that's not documented in the chart? Yeah, you're missing um, four years of evil medical school and three years of residency because I'm the doctor and I'm telling you this guy doesn't look right to me. And also the family's worried about getting him into a sniff. And if I don't put him in inpatient, he's not going to get those three days to get to the sniff. So I'm just going to go ahead and say he's inpatient. Right, right, right. <laughs> well, no, really, you're not right. Um, and I would say that. Good. Oh, you, yeah. <laughs> no, you're now not I'm right. getting scared. Well, clinically, what's yeah. happening with that patient? I understand and I'm sympathetic to, to the patient's family and the patient needs to, to maybe be admitted to a sniff. But clinically, what's going on with that patient? And if it's something that's not already written, do you have new, additional information that you could give me yeah. so that I can transfer this information to our payer? And, you know, honestly, that's perfect. And that's exactly <laughs> how our case managers uh, uh, do it with me. They'll say, you know, what am I missing here? Is there some criteria? We, we, we want to make it work. If it's inpatient, that's great, but we're not seeing it, and these are the guidelines. Now, the, que now the question that, that a lot of the doctors, well, first of all, I think it's interesting because it allows nurses and case managers mm -hmm. to step up to doctors mm -hmm. and say, look, we have this set of guidelines, right, Bill? Right. Like, yeah. I mean, as a doctor, how do you feel about it, it makes a, I would imagine it makes it a lot easier to go up to the doctor and say, okay, so here are, the, here are some criteria for inpatient and outpatient. One of it is if somebody's really, really sick, they get admitted. Do they meet one of these? Can you document something against it? Mm. Um, and if not, what did we try in observation care? How do you, you say it failed? What do you mean by it failed? You know, what, describe for me what you did and, and, what, and how you did it and what, how you evaluated it. One of the biggest uses of the guidelines is to just do that, guide the documentation. You know, all the mm. things going on with this heart failure patient, what are the three or four moving parts that you want to document against to, to show somebody six months later who doesn't know anything but what's in the chart why you did what you did and show your math. Mm, that's what it is. Right. Showing your math. Show your math. Even as a nurse, show your math. Show your math. Well, man, nurses have to show their math all the time now. Absolutely. It's click, 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 click. And, and well, so, okay, this is interesting because the concern is months later upon review, you are going to be denied mm -hmm. a stay. And I remember the case that our hospital made to us all those years ago was, listen, uh, this hospital doesn't stay afloat if we don't get paid to take care of our patients. Right. So it's on you guys to help us uh, do the right documentation to justify what you're doing. Now, to us, it feels terrible because we just wanna do the right thing. But the truth is, and we had this conversation on our last show, yeah. a lot of times without help, without data, without some guidelines, we won't necessarily know what the right thing is. Right. And we fall victim to all kinds of cognitive errors and also to different biases and also to just not having that data. Right. So having the guidelines, actually, I used to be a very anti-guideline kind of person, right? No. And yet I know, right? Me, <laughs> oppositional defiant? <laughs> How could that be? <laughs> and yet here I am quite inspired, actually, by w when I see some of the talks you guys are doing. I'm like, you know, your whole goal 
is to make it better for patients, better for hospitals, and actually better for payers. Because remember, we love to hate insurance companies, but they also have an interesting alignment, which is they want to do the right amount of care because then they maximize their revenue. If they don't do enough care, that care then gets expensive later when the patient's Mm -hmm. in the ER. If they do too much care, they've wasted money and they might cause harm. So actually, technically, I know people hate them and they're for-profit and all that, but let's say they're not-for-profit like in Germany where they compete for federal money, mm-hmm. for a, 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 a universal coverage. It's the same thing. Their incentives actually have to align with that, and these guidelines might help Absolutely. all the parties. Medicare is, is tax-based, is, is taxpayer-supported. Yeah. So you know, efficiency in Medicare is in everybody's interest. A lot of the disagreement is, not all of it, but a lot of it is about documentation. Mm. That often, you know, mm-hmm. for whatever reason, it, you know, how many times can you write the same thing or it's difficult to write the note or, or you know, just look at the labs. You should know if the patient needs to be admitted. But having a way to know what to document against, whether it's the initial sickness, you know, how they present it, is, look how bad it is. You know, let me describe it for you. Or they didn't respond to, to the treatment. And one of the conundrums with observation care is often not getting into observation care. It's getting out of out, it. Out, yeah. Uh-huh. Because um, different payers have different definitions of the length of observation care. Uh. For example, Medicare has the two midnight rule, which yes. is a, a, a whole conversation in itself. But uh, if you use content correctly, it's getting the right patient to the right level of care. So there's observation care admission criteria and observation care discharge criteria. So mm. if somebody meets these criteria, gee, maybe they can go home. And if they don't, that's your clue to write something to document why they need the hospital. You know what's crazy, and that reminds me again, more flashbacks. Middle of the night, I'm on call, get a call at 12.05 from the nurse supervisor on the floor. Do you know Mr. Williams in three, uh, just past two midnights, Right. and can no longer be observation status, and mm-hmm. we're gonna get audited, so can you write admission orders? Now this patient already has orders. Mm-hmm. So at this point, it's a patient I don't know that I'm covering that. I gotta right. copy paste all these orders and order sets and then just transfer the status to admit. And then it changes, you can just change it to inpatient. Mm-hmm. But it becomes a, a bureaucratic nightmare. But the truth is, if you're doing the right thing, you're looking at the criteria and going, you know what, no, they do need to be admitted. They haven't gotten better, they haven't reached discharge criteria. And now they need admission criteria. Yes. Now, what happens if they always stay in this weird OBS yeah. criteria? Yeah. Like they're not quite there still, but right. they can't yeah. go home. Yeah. One of the common issues is um, sort of like both sides of the ball. On the one side is that observation care has to be finite. Hmm. There has to be a point in time that you reevaluate, whether it's 24 hours, 48 hours, before the second midnight, whatever it is. And that's where you, you use discharge criteria to see if they're ready to go. So finite is one half of it. The other half of it, though, is that the time in observation yes. care has to be yes. clinically active. Yes. You can't uh-huh. just sit there and run out the clock. Yes. You have to be, you know, for the heart failure patient, actively trying to diurese them. And then, that again, that forms the basis of your argument later on as to why they need to be inpatient is that here's what we did. Here's, here's the information that makes me think they didn't get better. This is why I think they need to be inpatient. Mm. You know, Luann Bristol here writes, uh, I'm an ER uh, urgent care case, you are, you are, utilization review case manager, and I'm asked all the time, OBS versus inpatient. Docs say to me, uh, why can't I make them inpatient? I'll just have to flip them in two days. Yes, this is the way it is now. Guidelines are now, for many diagnoses, the patients have to have failed observation for 24 to 48 hours. Does that ring true to you? 
Yeah, a, a common question, though, is when is that endpoint? And right. Unfortunately, yes. there isn't a standard. I mean, the, the two midnight rule for all the noise around it was an attempt to create a standard. A, a standard. You know, so it, but it leads to sort of weird situations. Somebody comes in early Monday morning with right. heart failure, and your question is, well, they need to stay past the Tuesday's midnight. Your answer is, I don't know. Yeah. And that's observation care. I don't know yet. I'll yeah. reassess it tomorrow. Right. Whereas right. somebody comes in Monday at 11.30 p.m. and looks terrible, you might be able to make the judgment that this patient's not going to be better by tomorrow night. So and, and that's that, enough to warn inpatient yeah, right then. Yeah. yeah. And how do these guidelines help? Because I haven't looked directly at them. Like, I mean, what topics are you covering? Like CHF, pediatric asthma, other stuff? Yeah. yeah. So we, we cover over 400 guidelines, but the, the ones for this discussion, there are about 70 diagnoses that the admission isn't automatic. Right. You know, if somebody's having an MI, they're going to be admitted. They're having hemorrhagic stroke, they're going to be admitted. But COPD, asthma, CHF. Gray area. Gray areas where some do, some don't. We have lots of data that sh- helps frame that. So, for example, for pediatric asthma, you know, 8% are admitted. Mm. And for Medicare patients with CHF, 80% are admitted. So, you know, it sort of gives you a ballpark. So if you're the doc who's admitting 40% of the pediatric asthma patients, you're off the charts. You're off the charts. Now, that doc would say, but Bill, my, my patients, patients are sicker. sicker. Right. How do you respond to that? Or what's the data say? So the interesting thing is when you actually show clinicians the, our guidelines, usually they're like, oh, okay. I mean, you know, a lot depends on what you mean by severe, but I see what you're saying. It's mm-hmm. not just this arbitrary information. Usually, like on, on, on the clinical side, on the academic side, we all used to pick up other doc services at the end of the month. Oh, yeah. And there were some docs who always had a very small service that you picked up, and there were some docs that had a huge service, and that doc with the huge service would go to their grave saying, my patients were sicker every single month. Bill, I'm looking at you right now. Okay, every time, every time you sign out a service, it was a rock garden. Okay, and I discharge all those patients. I'm sorry, I got a little triggered, Bill. Um, I needed to name names. No, but they get defensive. When they're signing out, they get defensive about, well, we didn't send them home because of this or because of that. So yeah. this is, this is uh, a common thing is my patients are sicker. And if you actually look at it, it's even, even when you adjust for that, there's still big differences between docs. It's interesting because that actually feeds into a talk I did on the Dunning-Kruger effect, this idea that you don't know what you don't know. If you know a little bit, you mm-hmm. overestimate your knowledge. And it sounds very similar to the fact that 80% of drivers think that they are above average right. drivers. Right. And uh, it's because we just yeah. don't know that, no, actually, no, we're actually right in the middle or right. we're worse than that. And you can't, statistically, 80% cannot be above average. Uh, Sometimes I present the numbers just for shock value because a lot of this varies across the country. So if I go to a New York City academic medical center and say 50% of the Medicare patients with COPD are not admitted, they look at you like you're crazy because their, their world is you admit the vast majority of them, where in San Francisco, that same statement would be like, yeah, okay. So a lot of it is, a lot of, a lot of the use of the benchmark data is just to hold up that mirror, just sort of what is a safe level? What is a reasonable number? And you look for large deviations from that. Mm. India, can you help me understand some of these diagnoses also that just are automatic admissions? Like, you know, well, I mean, and I don't want to say what's automatic admission because it all depends on the patient and how that patient presents. Mm, so there's so, no like cookie cutter answer. I would no. There's mm. no cookie cu- cookie cutter answer to that. Um, mm. You need to look at your patient, know your patient, know the symptoms of your patient. Why are they? 
presenting to the ER, and then I suggest MCG guidelines, and then you can come. Biased. She's biased. <laughs> compare the guidelines to your patient status, and then make that de- that decision. Um, there's no real. Uh, you know, I come through the door and I have chest pain, and unless I've been diagnosed with an MI, then yes, mm-hmm. an inpatient. But still, I'm looking at I'm looking at the criteria. I'm looking at my patient's data. I can't just come through the door and they say yes, that's an inpatient. Mm. Unless maybe I've been intubated in, out <laughs> in the field somewhere. Now, if I'm on a ventilator coming through the door, then absolutely. I should be in Girl, I have <laughs> obs I have obs more than my fair share of intubated patients. I'm like, you know what, two midnights, I'm looking at you. Yeah, I could extubate. It's funny, even MI, you'd think that there'd be some no brainers. Like there's a few safe ones where we don't have to argue, right? Even MI has recently got more complicated because the yes. definition of an MI has changed. So ah. our guideline went from it's an MI, please, please admit, yeah. to here are some of the changes in the troponin levels and the EKG ah, changes that you need yeah. to diagnose um, MI because as it, as it turned out was a lot of people were be, being called MI who weren't necessarily Correct. having an MI. Um, so that even, even some of the slam dunks become a little bit more complicated. Again, if it's an MI, it's an MI. It meets the criteria. This is the international definition. It's not something we're making up. It's, it's, right. it's, this is a worldwide definition of MI. But it, it does hold you to a certain rigor mm. in terms of I'm calling it an MI because of these things. Yeah. And, you know, honestly, I think we need some of that. Because if you rely too much on just pure intuition and softness, you know, the data says it's just not necessarily going to work out for you. Right. Like there is when we know something in terms of a data spread, we ought to apply it. I think that's an interesting uh, component of, of even guideline creation. You know, as a managing editor of these guidelines, right, and you've got to help get them executed and you've got to come up and make these right. things up for us to pay attention to. And then, I, you know, you are constantly trying to look at the best data, the best practices and the spread of what's been going on in the country. You mentioned even admission rates, like if it's 8% for pediatric, pediatric asthma, kind of nationally say, and you're going at 40% and your patients aren't sicker, right. then there's a practice pattern deviation. Mm-hmm. And the thing is, I don't think you guys are ever saying, because this would have made me upset, they're not saying everyone has to toe the line and behave exactly the same. They're saying, okay, here's the guideline where you probably ought to look at, Mm -hmm. and then you deviate on your own clinical judgment, but it better be something that you can justify. Like say, you know, because of this. Right. I mean, it's it's not... Most things that have are stereotypes have a kernel of truth. So the ED ED docs sense of somebody being sick or not sick, going to go south, not going to go south. Mm. Often there's something to it, but you have to verbalize it. You have to say why. You have to sort of here 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 are the risk factors. Here's the reasons I think this person is more fragile. Mm. One of the one of the common scenarios is that docs got used to a certain level of severity being severe enough to meet an inpatient. You know, mm. When they trained, the early part of their career, this was how bad a CHF had to be in order to be an inpatient. Mm. And practice has changed. So mm. now, needing oxygen with pulmonary edema doesn't in and of itself necessarily warrant inpatient care. And that, that is sort of like resetting the rheostat of how, how ill people have to be to be in the hospital. Use the word rheostat. That's a big word. I don't understand it. I get gonna, paid by the word. I'm so. going to take it as offense. <laughs> um, Lynn, uh, Lynn Spryzak says, uh, Docs, here's the easy button. 
use the big words, no insufficiency, distress, dysfunction. Use specific diagnosis terms in your notes. Don't be wishy-washy. I can have respiratory distress if I run up and down the stairs, but you wouldn't necessarily admit me to an inpatient bed. I mean, is there truth to that? Like, what, is the language that you put in your note matters and does the guidelines help you with the language? I'd say yes. Um, From a case management standpoint, um, oftentimes I tell um, the case managers, document to the guideline that you're using. If it says um, pulmonary edema is severe or persistent, then write that in your notes. (laughs) But support it, of course, from your your patient's clinical data. And Lynn, yes, I agree with you. Look at that. I bet Lynn's a case manager. I didn't see the full thing. I, you know? Uh-huh. Yeah, I think so. I think Send we're us seeing your little, credentials, Lynn. We're seeing a little coven of case managers here. Believe me, I know it well. Uh, so, you know, I, I, it's interesting because then again, are we just, as they say in House of God, right? Are we buffing the chart? Mm-hmm. Are we just playing games here? Or does this have any bottom line for our patients? I and mean, what are your thoughts on that? I don't think we're we're buffing the game. I think um, just from human, from just being humans, physicians are busy. Um, you have a, a, a large patient caseload, and sometimes they're just not thinking about what's what's needed. So it's the job of that case manager to help guide that physician in that documentation. Um, looking at you know looking at that patient status, and of course, it's all about quality of care as well. You know. Is this patient receiving the, the correct care that they need at this appropriate level, which is OBS versus inpatient or OBS or inpatient? My personal experience with the best guidelines is that they prompt me to remember. It's almost like an order set. Yes. Sometimes you see an order set pop up, and nurses yes. hate this because when the order sets come up, the docs are like, yeah, I'll have a smidge of that. Right. I don't even think about that. Yeah. Sure, let's do that. But the truth is, if you design an order set well, just like designing guidelines well, you're actually going to prompt uh, um, sort of to avoid holes in memory, holes in yes. thinking, yes. holes in recollection, especially when we're busy, you have 20, 30 patients. It's like, yeah. well, I need some help. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes I did like those uh, pop-up guidelines. I'm like, oh, I forgot about DVT prophylaxis. Right. Or yes. I forgot because, yes. you know, right. but, and so I think, I think the same thing might apply. There might be a silver lining to the whole payment game that we have to play. So by the way, don't shoot the messengers that they have to make the guidelines to help us play a game that the government designed. <laughs> or pairs design, right? That's something that I have had to come to terms with. It's like, listen, if we really want change, we have to figure that out, but we're not there yet, so now we have to figure out how this, this game works. Now, in terms of nursing, I wanted to follow up on that. Um, how do you, what do you think nurses' roles are in this? You know, there's so much, uh, there's a degree of critical thinking, there's also a degree of algorithmic thinking. It is, and I, I think the job of the nurse, first, uh, always, there's always a patient in the bed. Um, so you always need to look at that patient first, mm. uh, review that clinical. What's what's going on with my patient? Do I know what's really happening with my patient? Um, you know, reading between the lines, um, looking at the EMR, looking at the vital signs. You know, a patient on paper or in the EMR could, I mean, very well may look like they need to go home. You know, maybe they, they need to be discharged, but if you go and lay eyes on that patient, that patient could be very well be in distress and you come in the next day and they're in, in the ICU on, on a vent. I know that happened to me. So uh, mm. sometimes you have to lay eyes on your patient, use the guidelines to help you, uh, assist you in documentation, supporting that particular documentation. And then as a, um, as a bedside nurse, you know, communicate with your nurses, with your um, case managers, 
Communicate with that physician. That's why we have those rounding or grand rounds or walking rounds or huddles or whatever the hospital system wants to, to call it. But speak and talk and collaborate about this, about your patient. Be a patient advocate. What? <laughs> Are you from a different planet? Uh, no. That's how we ought to be doing. Yeah, that's how we ought to be doing nursing and care in general. And actually a follow up on that. We had a utilization management doc when I was practicing at Stanford. And his whole job was to keep us from violating guidelines, making sure the hospital and the clinic got paid. And so it was easy to want to hate this dude. Yeah. Because first of all, you're like, okay, you sold out. He still saw patients, but he he did this as his administrative piece. But what ended up happening is he would insist on, instead of just doing the chart reviews and all that, he'd come once a week with a list of patients that all were on all of our service. All the hospitals would sit in a little room with him and we'd run the list. And he's a doctor, we're a doctor. Right. Yeah. So we go, okay, Mrs. Pickles. Oh yeah, I know on paper she looks like she ought to have been home like a month ago, but here's the real story. Right. And you go through it and that doctor's eyes go, oh, totally get it. All right, maybe we can help you with some case management stuff. Get that right. stuff. And done. document that. Yeah. Document. Sort of show that. And please document it because you haven't documented it in your notes. Right. You're like, okay, let me take a note to write a note about the note on this <laughs> note. But you have to do it because that's how we do it. And that communication, that interpersonal connection yes. is what transformed it from an onerous bureaucratic task to also a bunch of docs sharing ideas. Yes. Like, yes. oh, you know what? Maybe what we should do with her is, have you thought about this? Like, right. oh, I didn't think about that. That's yes. a great idea. So it brings back that sort of lounge. You, you had all the different names for the, whether it's grand rounds, whether it's huddle, yeah. whether it's uh, uh, um, multidisciplinary, multidisciplinary. multidisciplinary yeah. well, hopefully it's not M and M. But it's it, it, it's so important, and we've lost it with the EHR because all we do is like staff message Correct. with frowny emojis. Right. Yeah, right. I use poo emojis just because I find they say a lot with a little. Um, <laughs> but I don't know. There is a safety angle to it, also though. I mean, OBS versus inpatient is very much a a payment issue and a money issue. Mm. Um, there is the the actual data, though, that being in the hospital is bad for you. Absolutely. It's very dangerous to Absolutely. be in the hospital. Absolutely. That's where the big bugs are. That's where the mistakes yes. happen. I've had family members in the hospital where it's all you can do to... I had to take the oxygen off my father. I don't know how many times. They, they'd keep putting it back on. I, I'd take it off. Have the doctor take, change the order. They'd still put it back on. Eventually, I just remove the tubing. Mm. You know, because it, care sometimes goes into automatic mode. So... Part of this discussion about um, level of care is also a safety issue. Mm. If somebody doesn't need to be in the hospital, they shouldn't be in the hospital. Or if somebody's ready to go home, they should go home because that's when you keep them when all the uh, things can come unraveled and bad things can happen. Okay, there's, I, we have to follow up on that because that's important to me. I just want to say one thing. I thought OBS was going away, said Selena Powelson. OBS is not going away, is it? I won't have a job if it does. (laughs) I don't think so. <laughs> He's lobbying Congress to keep off. No, but, but that, then... There are, there, I, I think a lot of this is payer-dependent. So there could be some payer-provider contracts that hmm. talk about just the length of the hospitalization. It's one night, it's two nights, it's three nights, and don't use OBS versus inpatient language. Hmm. Certainly from a, a Medicare, a CMS point of view, med, uh, observation care is definitely here to stay. Got it. And now to, to follow up on the thing about safety... I tell patients the hospital's the most dangerous place on earth that you can be. I don't care what's going on with you. I think it's a terrible place for a human being to be. And maybe it's just because I was taking care of them, but I, 
<laughs> I suspect it's all the things you're talking about. It's all the errors and all the complexity yes. of yes. a human system that hasn't been optimized yet. Right. That, that, and this is one thing I got to say, and this is my pitch for buffing health 2.0 before we can build 3.0. I'm always talking about how health 2.0 is a commodification and a, and a, a cookbook medicine and an algorithmification, but the truth is we need it because 1.0 was just people shooting it from the hip. Mm-hmm. And we know the data shows that does not work. Yes, maybe we had better relationships with our patients. Maybe we were a better relationship with our communities in general in those days. And that's changed as a function of society in general. But until we really put a polish on these kind of things, like making hospitals safe. Yes. You know, I did the keynote at the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. I mean, these people, they're passionate. They've yeah. all had loved ones who've been injured in the yeah. hospital, who've had mistakes happen. You know, jumbo jets crashing full of mistakes every day. Right. And, 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 and if that doesn't get your elephant riled up and wanting to like do something about it, and these guys are actually doing something about it, as are many people. So I don't think it's a good, I see in my tribe a lot, a lot of people like, ah, just let us do our thing. It's right. like, but people yeah. die. The golden days weren't always so golden. They weren't always so, so golden. Yeah. I mean, there's, in terms of, you reminded me of getting riled up. There's um, some slides that I have that really get me riled up. So one is a, a slide looking at bariatric surgery centers around the country. Mm. And they look at adjusted, they try to adjust for different things, complication rates. Mm. And they, you know, there's a big curve of the complication rates. It varies, but that information isn't out there. When somebody's going to the hospital, they have no idea. In Washington State, there's six hospitals that do this. One has a complication rate nine times the other. But the average patient doesn't know which is which. How can that be? You know, how- and if that doesn't infuriate you, right. now the thing is, if we're being honest, like you and I are like, well, but the that poor surgeon who has the complications right. doesn't know any better, and so why should we take his livelihood away by publishing this data? The truth is, because people will die. It was what, I remember that data. It was like one extra death per 11 patients treated. That's the difference in outcomes between some of the worst docs and right. some of the best. And some of the, uh, like the, the other study that gets me is looking at um, Percutaneous coronary interventions for stable disease. So stent for like, right. and, you know, and stable coronary. Some disease. hospitals are completely in compliance with the ACC guidelines. Everything's fine. I'd say about 10 to 15 percent of the hospitals, something like a third to a half of their PCIs are not necessary. Mm. Would not meet ACC criteria. Can you imagine putting a stent right, in someone's money corner in the of the yeah. that can be done for that. Mm-hmm. And the fact that that is still around, I think is one of the reasons why we have utilization management. Yes. Yeah. Because somebody, ha- somebody, somebody somewhere does have to at least put some lid on, on every practice. So it's absolutely necessary. And listen, I've, I, look, I, um, I hedge my bets. Okay. <laughs> I hang out with the payers, the insurance companies. I hang out with the providers. Okay. <laughs> I hang out with the patients because mm-hmm. At Somebody's some point, I'm going to need a job. <laughs> and the truth of the matter is every single one of those groups has a beautifully valid perspective on this issue. Yes. And the truth is when you listen to insurance guys talk about the egregious care variation that happens with certain physicians, you're like, wait, so why are we doing these tests? This is causing harm. Right. It's not right. just financial harm. It's physical harm to people. So that should get us mad. But at the same time, there's an overreach too, oh, like absolutely. sitting on a phone with a prior author. How do you reduce that provider-payer friction that is we're so antagonistic to each other because of money and interference and all that? I mean, how do we reduce that? There are some, Go ahead. There are some very interesting examples across the country where there's I'm not sure how they got there, but there's a level of trust between payers yes. and providers. What? Where they agree yeah. that 
if you if if they both use the MCG guidelines and they say yes, if somebody meets these criteria, yes, um, admit them and we'll pay for it. We'll do spot checks every so often mm. to make sure everybody's playing straight. But the, the, a lot of this churn of administration is so unnecessary on both sides. Mm. Mm. Um, but you have to have a certain level of trust on both. You know, so they're not going to admit people that shouldn't be admitted, and the and the payer has to be careful about um, missing overuse as well. Yeah. And, and I, oh, you said trust. I think that's key. The organizations where I've seen this work, certain joint ventures, things like that, yeah. it's all about trust. It's all about people working together. You were going to say something. Here. Yeah, I think it, it's relationship and I think it's trust. You know, having sat in on both sides of, of the fence, um, I can remember you know, working for a payer, calling those, those hospital case managers. Because I had a relationship with that person, you know, she would say, well, India, you know, I know it, it, on paper it looks like, you know, this patient shouldn't be in ops or shouldn't be inpatient but trust me I'm, I'm going to get you some additional information and because I trusted that case manager and I trusted her experience and I and I knew her I think um, that helped with with payments that helped with that payer provider friction but now you know now we have fax only facilities you know so they're only sending information electronically there's no one picking up the phone calling each other there are no emails there's nothing there i mean there it's just you know fax me a, an authorization number or a denial and i take it or you know i try to set up a peer to peer with my physician so i think that's what's lacking mm. when we when we talk about payer and provider friction in, in the case management world. That's probably the, the biggest insight yet that I've gotten out of this conversation because we all intuitively know this. Yeah. If you relegate this process to automation and faxitation and mm -hmm. pure clickamation, I'm making these words up. Clickamation, I like that. But they feel right in my right, gut. Right. My elephant's like, click mm -hmm. you tell them about clickamation, <laughs> ZDog MD. Uh, my little writer is like, you stop talking now. <laughs> so you hear that voice too. I oh, get that a lot too. Okay. <laughs> it's the same voice that gives me the imposter syndrome. Right. It's like, you don't need to be here right, right now right, with right, these right. smart people. Um, <laughs> if, if we relegate it to that, we lose trust, we lose connection, we lose relationship, yes. we lose the why also. Yes. And I think you nailed it because that's why I like the utilization management rounds. Like, I liked it. I'm like, Terrigal's coming. We're going to do yes. utilization management yes, rounds. I might get yelled at for keeping someone inappropriately, but you know what? I'm going to have a good time. I like this guy. I trust him. He's got good clinical judgment. Yes. And he's relying on science that isn't dumb. Mm -hmm. And uh, wants everybody's motivations are good. We're all trying Absolutely. to do the right thing. Absolutely. We assume good motivation. It's hard to assume a good motivation from a fax piece of paper. Why are we still using faxes, by the way? It's, it's infuriating. Um, and when we speak to people who work that way, they say, actually, that's the preferred mode. <laughs> because the alternative <laughs> is being on hold on the phone. Exactly right. So Doing in that a way, this at least, lets you, at least lets you to keep going. Man. So what's the – is the answer – I'll tell you what I think the answer is and you can correct me. We have to start rehumanizing the pieces that we've dehumanized once we understand what we're doing. Mm -hmm. So we understand certain guidelines. We understand certain criteria. We understand unexplained care variations. Yeah. We understand there's payer-provider friction because there's no communication. Okay, so now let's start to fix these on smaller levels where humans know each other, yes. work in pods locally because all healthcare is local, using – systemic and network guidelines that are generated by a bunch of smart minds working together, add a little yeah. machine learning and some right. other things like right. that. Yeah. 
and apply them to that unique human being in front of you. You have a team supporting you. And if you're a private practice doc, you have a virtual network supporting you. And then what you work as is a huge brain instead of this individual neuron just shooting off into the, into the void. Yeah. I mean, a, a, a common um, job function now in hospitals is this thing called a physician advisor. And their job is to help the hospital deal with the denials. And they do it both ways. It's like preventive medicine. They try to educate their uh, docs about here's the, here, is, here are some of the guidelines. Look at how sick you have to be. Can you please document against these things? Mm-hmm. And on the other hand, you, you reminded me of this uh, just now, that don't appeal every denial. Like don't burn your clinical credibility by trying to defend everything because yeah. sometimes it's not defendable. Yeah. Sometimes okay. you can use the guidelines in something close to real time to actually affect your decision. And sometimes you're using them on Monday for a decision that was made on Friday. Mm. And it's hard to, make it, hard to make it fit. And I've spoken to a lot of physician advisors where they don't want to burn the credibility with the person they know on the other end of the phone by, de- by defending yeah. things that aren't defendable. So that way, when you, when you pick one when you, you're going to appeal and do something with, there's sort of this clinical sense of, oh, gee, if he's bringing it up, it means it must be something It's a real bad. deal. Correct. That's such good advice, actually. That's really important. So there's a whole group of people called physician advisors? Yeah. Yes. Wow. It's sort, of, it's sort of like hospitalists came yeah. out of nowhere, yeah. and now all these hospitalists are in all these hospitals, and now a physician advisor is there to help deal with what the hospital is getting all these denials yeah. and you know you lose them if you don't appeal you know if you don't do something in a timely fashion you just lose so there's this new career of, wow. of, of dealing with this and they're they're experts in this they know they know our guidelines better than I do yeah. mm-hmm. I mean, they come to me the next year and say you changed the comma in the asthma guideline they're like oh my goodness somebody's reading it that closely <sighs> I have mixed feelings about it man I'm like well we're just creating an administrative super class right? well, well also the physician advisor is there to assist case managers so in your case mm, when, yeah. when we did the, uh, the, the when you yelled at me and made me no, cry you yelled at me yeah, sometimes uh, I yell at her. <laughs> that physician advisor to to help you buffer that particular physician um, you know and, yeah. and maybe they can have a conversation and you can get the information that you need changing physician practice manager. yeah changing Absolutely. physician practice that's is notoriously is. difficult mm. with, especially that's where data comes in so if you can say something like here's your peers and mm. here's you mm. um, and it's definitely very I would imagine it's very difficult for case managers it's, it's hard enough to ask the physician to document something let alone saying um, we got denied for this payment. Can you please call exactly. the insurance agency and explain why? Yeah. Mm, man, those calls are the worst. Yeah. Sitting there and just... Uh, you know, we did a video where uh, Ryan Newhoffel, he's a doc in Kansas, actually videotaped his prior auth call with a payer wow. to get a CT head approved for somebody with a palpable skull mass. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, he had to... It was a, a one-hour video Wow. Of him just sitting there and then different hold me <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't think they had the guidelines. No, I don't think so. I don't think they were using the guidelines. Because you, you know, I mean, who are your clients? They're the payers, the hospitals, the providers, everybody. Yes. We yeah. grew up in the, in the payer market, but mm-hmm. um, we, we've expanded to the point where about a third of the hospital systems use us. And they find it useful when the payers and the providers are sort of, they're looking at the same guideline at the same time and saying, here's why I'm admitting the patient, you know, bullet three. Yeah. And it just makes that conversation much, much more Master. direct yes. and powerful. So you're speaking the language of the people paying the bills yeah. and they can understand that. Yeah. And again, like nobody thinks that this is a wonderful way to do medicine, but it's the way that we have now. Now, of course, when we burn it all down 
and rebuild it, which is not going to happen because that's just not how things work. Now, what about um, all this uh, uh, jabber about um, Medicare for all and all these things? How will that affect? Let's say we give a Medicare for all, which you guys know my stance on this. We'll talk about it another time. But if we cover everything with an expanded Medicare and we jack up taxes and we're paying for everything, (laughs) paying for stuff that works and paying for stuff that doesn't work because that's what Medicare does now. Uh, How will guidelines and things like that function in that world? Well, that's, I, I get asked that. My, my son asks me that all the time. He always tries to find things. like He says that AI is going to replace me. Like I'm going to be obsolete in three months. <laughs> I told my wife that. She's a radiologist. She's like, not in my lifetime. I'm like, okay, we're taking bets now. Right, right. Yeah. Um, you know, it's interesting because I would say Medicare is actually a very interesting payer because it in some ways has the fewest controls. All that administration that the other payers have are the control. Are the control. Are the things looking Medicare's at ten percent overhead is because they're not paying for right. these guys to micromanage. And, yeah. and you know, so one prediction. This actually, I think, happened in Massachusetts when they expanded their one payer system. Was utilization went way up mm-hmm. because you know, in the end, you're still going to need again because docs are docs decisions vary. Some do it more, some do it less. Um, one of the other strategies was, you know, ch- change the incentives a little bit, mm-hmm. you know, instead of it being um, the hospital gets more for every admission, it's some sort of, you know, risk sharing yeah. for population health. So, you know, they would be just as interested in keeping the patient out of the uh, out of admissions. Which, of course, would allow them then to hire primary care physicians who practice a turntable type model where they're incentivized to keep people well, their salary, they do the right thing Absolutely. for the patient. And now, and of course, this is the thing people say, well, that's like an HMO from the 90s where people were dying because they were withheld care. No, that was a zero sum game where if I withhold the care, someone else will cover right. the got bill right. in the ER. No, it's got to be everyone's skin is well, in the game. Kaiser out here on right. the West Coast is a great example. Integrated. There's, there's selection bias because the patients who choose it buy into it, the doctors who practice there choose yeah. into it. But that, it's a great example of of population health management actually can lead to lower costs. Right, right, right. And you know, we've had a lot of, uh, we had Robbie Pearl, former uh, chief medical officer, or the president of the Kaiser, permanent mm-hmm. medical group, talking mm-hmm. about that. I, I think it's, it, it's interesting because it's a model with so much promise. It clicks all the boxes right. that I would technically want, mm-hmm. and yet it's still not there. Nobody's gotten it right, right yet, and there's downside. And, and so the question is, we're in America. Like, if anyone's going to fix this thing, I'm a little bit of a, you know, go America mood right now. <laughs> I think we can do this. I hear, you know, the countries that have um, uh, single payer or universal coverage, that's important. Everyone should be covered. But the question is, how do you do it in a way that doesn't stifle innovation, that mm-hmm. doesn't lead to increased utilization? Mm-hmm. Now, one thing I want to put a coda on that we talked about early on was this whole idea that um, hospitals are dangerous places. I'll take it a step further, and this is controversial, and uh, MCG does not endorse this data. <laughs> I actually think that the majority of what we do in modern medicine is voodoo, witchcraft, unhelpful, damaging, and costly. And that's why when you look at countries that spend less, a lot less on healthcare, it's not that they're necessarily doing medicine better. It they might be they're doing it. less of it. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and I go back to House of God, the Bible right. of medicine. <laughs> the, be, the, part, the best part of medicine, the doing good medicine, is doing as much of nothing as possible. Right. And so the idea that the social determinants, nutrition, yes. safety, education, those things matter way more to your health, your zip code, way more than anything else that happens in the clinic, I think is valid. Now, it hurts us because we train in the medical model and we're like, no, we do stuff. 
Right. Four right. people. I mean, two people. I mean, ish. Right. right. Yeah. It's hard to convince patients too. So, oh, they have an expectation. So, for example, yeah. Kaiser flies out here on the West Coast in different in different markets Correct. along the West Coast. In the, on the East Coast, it's much less prevalent. And some of that, I think, is that the patients in different areas of the country, you know, on the East Coast, my sister's cousin, brother's sister's dog had a headache. They got a CAT scan. Then he got a CAT scan. How come, you, how come you're not giving me a CAT scan? More is better. <laughs> India, why are you telling me I can't get a CAT scan? What you talking about? <laughs> I want a CAT scan. The dog got it. The dog got a CAT scan. give this man a CAT scan. No, actually, I think that's an important thing. All healthcare is local, and I, you're right. You're absolutely right. Different expectations. Different expectations. Yeah. Whereas on the West Coast, they're like, hey, man, whatever, bro. Tell me. <laughs> um, India, how did you get your name? That's the dopest name in the, on the planet. Uh, well, um, my mom was watching the soap operas, and there was an India on the soap operas in the 70s. What? <laughs> wow. So ahead of your time. Where'd you grow up? Memphis, Tennessee. Tennessee. Yes. So a very unhealthy state in general. Yes. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. Very unhealthy. Is that what prompted you to get? What prompted you to go into nursing? Well, you know, I was um, at a career fair in the third grade, and a nurse came to speak with the with you know oh, wow. you have career day, and I've never wanted to do anything else but be a nurse. Oh, that's fantastic. From that third grade. From that third grade. Yes. You know what, Dad? <laughs> and you told me that doing those career fairs was a waste of time. Well, you know what? I'm changing lives because I'm going to those career fairs, Bill, and yeah. I'm telling people, don't you dare be a doctor. <laughs> it's all clicking boxes. It's all interpreting these guys' guidelines. I hate it. All right? <laughs> it's all about impatient versus all. That's what it is. And that brings us full circle. Full circle. What? Any parting words on this Inpatient versus OBS, do people have resources they can go to? We'll give links and things like that. I mean, in the end, you should do the right thing for the patient. Right. I think the, the goal of guidelines like ours is to help sort of normalize what is severe, what is bad, and what is bad enough to warrant admission, and or how to document that somebody's getting better. It's not to tell you what to do. Right. It's not to... Um, uh, be the only driver of practice. I think there is there it, there, there should be the openness to change. Like, mm. You know, some doctors, some of their practices do need to change because it, you know they're practicing in a way that people practiced before, or for whatever reason they're different than their peers. So there has to be an openness to change. But use of evidence is should be a good thing. Yes. Use evidence. I think that's fair. India, any thoughts? Um, use the evidence. Know your patients. Know your patient status. Use the guidelines if you have them as a guideline, just as that. Use your clinical judgment and document everything. I should be able to read your patient's notes and know exactly what's going on with the patient without ever having to look in your EMR. Uh, my handwriting was so bad, I even typed sloppy. I, I do too. People are like, autocorrect saved my, my life. Although it's mostly wrong now. <laughs> Like people, are, the UM guys are calling me like, it says here that this person's an alien with a silver in their veins. Like, no, I said they have CHF and an infarct in their brains. Like, and they what? need a CAT scan. And they need a CAT scan. Uh, I love it. You know, I, yeah, see, I like that. Michelle Diane, document, document, document. I mean, that's the truth. Let's read a couple quick comments and then we'll go. Okay. Um, oh, man, look at this. People are off the chain. Wow. Dr. Mike Sevilla, who's a homie, family medicine docs, shout out to Memphis. Ah! Mm -hmm. Tennessee, <laughs> t t Tennessee. 
Um, whatever happened to those guys that sang that Tennessee song? I don't remember. Uh, uh, Arrested Development. Arrested Development. Yeah, I don't know. Oh. Oops. This is not a plug for Arrested Development, but they were the singers. <laughs> My dad, who is Indian, but not named India, uh, <laughs> used to call it Arrested Development. <laughs> um, yeah, we do it every day. Carolyn Kors, doc, this patient can get antibiotics outpatient length of stay. So really, like, I think it's important that the team pushes, too. You know, because it did, it got me woke. Initially, I would be defensive. Right. And mm-hmm. then I realized, no, everybody's got really good intentions, good knowledge, and Absolutely. they're at, practicing at the top of their license Absolutely. and their training. Who the hell am I? I'm still, you know, I'm still learning right. all the right. time. Mm-hmm. So it, it actually helped a lot. Now, there are some docs who have a little bit of that psychopathy, make it tough. Okay, here's a statement that I, I think is ridiculous, but I'm going to say it right now. Angela Wyatt Violet says, I love utilization review. So do I, Angela. Who I says that? Wow. She says that. <laughs> That's a strong statement, Angela. And I think these guys agree, at least one of them. Uh, all right. I think um, burn it down and dance in the ashes, Michelle Diane. There's that. <laughs> so I want to say a last thing here, okay? First of all, thank you so much thank for you. being thank here. You. Thank you. It's great. so fun to see you guys do your thing and be passionate about what you do. And also take your clinical expertise, nursing, medicine, hospital medicine, and apply it to making our system better, more efficient for everybody, for all the parties, because honestly, they all have a role. When I spoke for the MCG guys, I got to give this one pitch for this company. Um, There are not a lot of companies that ask me to come and speak because they are scared of what I'm going to (laughs) say. They're like, oh my God, he talks about moral injury. He talks about telling administrators to this and that. He talks about this and that and the other thing. These guys are like, no, we're going to have you speak not once, but a couple times over a couple of years, not just for us, but for our clients, because people need to know what health 3.0 looks like. So they understand that what we're building is a boat, a ship to get us there as fast as possible. Until we fix that ship, we're not going to get there. And the culture of this organization in particular is one of putting that patient at the center, helping each other, collaborating. It's a beautiful thing. And again, unsolicited pitch. These guys are awesome. So that all being said. I think we're out. What do you think? Yeah. I think we're out. We're out. Tennessee. Tennessee. It's kind of easy when you're listening to the G-Dub sounds. That's not that amazing. That's That's Warren G. All right. We out. All right. Hey, it's Dr. Z. Thanks for getting through the whole episode. That's a huge accomplishment. (laughs) And so at this point, I just got to ask you for a few favors because it just helps us so much if you leave a review on your favorite podcast platform and subscribe. It, it just really helps the algorithm to get this message out to others. The second thing is email me, hello at zdogmd.com. I get all these emails personally. I can't respond to them all, but I need to hear your voice because especially on podcast, we don't have a comment section. And I wanna hear how this episode affected you, what you'd like to hear in the future, what you think we got wrong, what we think we got right, anything, anything, or just say hi. So that's really powerful. And the third thing is, Financially, it helps us a lot to support the show in any way you can. And if you go to zdogmd.com forward slash supporters, you can join our supporter tribe on your favorite platform, YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, wherever. What that will get you on those platforms is live shows with me that are exclusive for supporters and access to our Zoom meetings where we talk about awakening realization and we share with each other our own experience. It's a powerful group effect. It's a community, really. And we support and love each other and share, again, through our own experience, how we're waking up. So, and that that ripples out into systems, into transforming healthcare and education and government. 
So it st really starts with us. So join us there if you can. Again, zdogmd.com forward slash supporters. And I'm so grateful to have you with us.